Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. wanted to remind you that every so often, uh, it, it may, if you're just kind of going from Sunday to Sunday, it may seem like we, uh, we're skipping uh, some passages, and just to let you know, we're not. Um, last week I preached, and then there's a passage between last week and this week, which Travis actually uh, talked through um, on, our, on our social media platform. So if you missed that, make sure you go and catch that. Uh, Travis talks through um, the passage between last week and this week's passage. Um, and we've done that a couple times, uh, just to kind of be, be a little bit more reaching out to engage uh, some digital in a digital format. Since we've started studying the book of Mark, as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, um, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. He, he begins, he begins uh, talking about the kingdom being at hand and, and coming, and, and, and he talks, he keeps directing attention back to the kingdom of God as he walks through his ministry. And what's interesting is that his, his very presence and even the way he talks about things sets him at odds with the religious leaders. And so really what, what, what happened is, is there was, I think on the part of the Jewish religious leaders, they confused the little picture or the mechanism for the big picture. Uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' day were defending the temple, and more precisely, they were, they were defending the sacrificial system that they saw as what was most important in their connection with God. And, and, and here's what's interesting is the problem with that is that that system that they were under was really simply a conduit that was to bring the kingdom of God in, into focus. And, and so they were focusing on the system and the temple and all of that kind of stuff and forgetting about the kingdom of God, which is bigger than the sacrificial system, that's bigger than the temple. And so when Jesus was talking about the coming of the kingdom and as he was talking in pretty, pretty specific terminology, the, the religious leaders got defensive and were defending what really was the mechanism rather than the overarching thing in the kingdom of God. And they got those things mixed up. And, and, so, and so as Jesus preaches and teaches, he talks, he talks to us in the Gospels and in the Gospel of Mark how he came to show us the kingdom of God. And that while he does establish the church and there's kind of a transition in Acts, we need to recognize that, that the church is, is the conduit for bringing in the kingdom, that the church is uh, uh, subservient to the kingdom of God. And, and, and so, and so it's, it's interesting because Jesus says, very clearly says to the disciples when, when, they, when, they, when, when Peter talks about who Jesus is, and, and Jesus makes this statement, he says, I give you the keys to what? Not the church, but the kingdom. I give you the keys to the kingdom. And so really the church has the keys that open the doorway to the kingdom of God, which is, again, so much bigger than, than, than the, the sacrificial system in Israel or the church today. It's this bigger thing. And, and, and Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And he says that in the context of anxiety and worry 
And he does it because there's so many things in this world that we, we have to be anxious about and worried about and concerned about. But he says, seek first the kingdom. He doesn't see, say seek only the kingdom. He's realistic about it, but he says, seek first in matter of priority and loyalty. Seek first the kingdom. And so really what he's saying in that, in the context of anxiety and worry and concern is, is, is that we are to redefine our concerns to the reality of what is actually real, what's happening in and around us, which, which, and not what could be or what we think might happen, but in terms of the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God predates the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God is God's kingship over all that we see and we don't see. So the kingdom predates the, the sacrificial system and it will go beyond the church. That when everything is said and done, it'll be the kingdom of God and he's used his people to usher in that kingdom. And, and so it's, I think it's interesting because the government in the days of Jesus and frankly in our day has power over the institution. The government, the Roman Empire had, had power over the institution of the temple. Because as we'll see in our passage today, Jesus talks about how the government tore down and destroyed the temple because it was able to do that. And in the same way, the government today has power over the institution of the church, but not the kingdom of God. The government doesn't tell the kingdom of God its values and its behavior and its characteristics. But could the government come and shut down church at some point? Sure but it can't shut down the kingdom because the kingdom of God preceded the temple and it will go beyond any church institution or building ever because it is the kingdom of God. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about. And that's why the religious leaders got so defensive and upset when Jesus would talk because he was talking about something that, that, that shifted their whole life from the center point of everything and made the kingdom of God the center point of everything. And, and so, if you have your Bibles this morning, we are in, we're in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 28. And I'm going to read the, kind of the first handful of verses here as we, as we begin to look at this. And, and uh, we, we enter into a completely different scenario in these next few verses. One that we haven't seen yet in Mark in, in relation to the religious leaders and Jesus. This is, kind of a, this is kind of crazy what happens here because it's completely different than what's been happening thus far. So in verse 28, it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them, religious leaders and Jesus, disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them, the religious leaders, well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that, that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one na one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So I don't know if this hits you as we, as we get into this, if it hits you as, as different from what we've been seeing with Jesus and the religious leaders, but this is, this is kind of crazy because here there's something different that's happening in this moment. First of all, there's an individual coming to Jesus to ask a question rather than a delegation. It's not a group of people, but it's one person. It's, 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 it seems to be more personal, more intimate. And, and it, there's also a different attitude that accompanies this one individual. Because up to this point, what we've seen is, is there has been hostile kind of aggression from the religious leaders, yet this scribe comes to Jesus with a favorable disposition. It says in the text that he was watching Jesus interact with the religious leaders, and, and he sees Jesus answering well. So he's impressed. And he's intrigued, and so he comes to Jesus with a favorable disposition. He actually comes to Jesus, get this, because this just doesn't happen in life ever. He comes to Jesus open-minded. Can you imagine, like, going into a situation open-minded? Like, that's just not wise, right? Because we don't want to go into things open-minded. We, we really want to go into things with predisposed opinions, right? That's just responsible, I mean, I'm an adult. I have predisposed opinions, even about things that you might introduce to me that I've never heard of before. Within that moment, I can have a predisposed opinion. Like, it's that quick. That's actually our superpower as human beings. If that was a superhero, if that was a superpower, we would all be superheroes because we are so good at predisposed opinions. Even the things we don't care about, we really can get strong in those things. And so here the scribe comes to Jesus open-minded, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because, because here's the thing, a lot of times we can think being open-minded is a weakness, and it's really not. Being open-minded is, it's, it's basically that I've made a decision to remove me from what's being said by someone else in the pursuit of understanding and comprehension, to listen. And now that doesn't mean that I will believe or disbelieve what I'm being open-minded about, because open-mindedness is not an acceptance or a rejection. It's actually seeking to understand, to listen. Like that, that's, that's, what, that's what being open-minded is. So the scribe comes to Jesus seeking to understand and comprehend before he makes his decision about what he, what he thinks and what his opinion is. Uh, and, and I think, you know, again, that's, that's kind of what's missing from today's society, isn't it? Because even when somebody asks you a question about what you think about something, you already know that they're going to tell you what you should have answered because we have these predisposed opinions. And, and so, so here comes this scribe to Jesus and says, Jesus, I, I, from this position of, I think this guy has something that I'm missing. And so he says, Jesus, uh, I want to know in a pretty genuine way, what is the greatest commandment? Now, why he asked that question, this was a pretty normal, normal debate, normal question within uh, Israel at that time. Because if, if you look at some background, what you'll see is that in the Old Testament, in the book of the law, the book of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, 
There were 613 separate commands that Israel had to follow. So, like, that's pretty complex. Like, I feel like that's even maybe more than, than rules at the DMV. So, like, I, I mean, as, as bad as the DMV is, um, like, the Old Testament was harder even um, and probably had people with as much un- unhappiness at moments. But, but, but so, so there's like 613 commands, and, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the elders, they divided those commands into heavy and light commands, the ones that kind of had more weight to them and the ones that were maybe less weighty. In fact, they made categories that were seen as more essential than others, which really bothers me because I'm so, I don't want to know that essential started back then. Um, I don't want to hear any more about essential or not essential. But, 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 but that's, that's what they did. And they said, okay, so this is kind of how things work. And, and there was obviously an understandable desire to simplify all of these commands. In fact, there was, there was a, a recorded um, interaction between uh, a person who was looking to, to simplify what it means to follow the law. And so he went to, to Hillel and Shammai, who were kind of uh, two different schools of religious thought among the religious leaders at the time in Israel. And uh, they were asked this question, teach me the whole Torah while I am standing on one leg. 613 laws while standing on one leg. And so Hillel actually responded to that question, and here's what he said. He said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole truth of the Torah. The rest is commentary. Does that response sound familiar at all of someone else in maybe the New Testament who responded to how we are called to live? Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus says essentially the same thing. All of the law and prophets are, are, are summarized, are encapsulated in this. And, 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 so, and so Jesus answers this question, this question that's been asked of so many people throughout, throughout time. What is the greatest commandment? And so Jesus responds by first going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where, where it, is, it is the thing that Israel is known by, is that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. God is one. There is one God. And so he starts there and he says, and, and so the command is that you shall love this one God. And Jesus says, with all your heart and with all your soul, your mind and all your strength. And so he covers every aspect of being human. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that's that sincerity of thought and feeling, the genuineness, genuine love for God, not, a, not out, of, out, of, out of guilt or out of uh, I have to, but, but out of genuine, genuine sincerity of thought and feeling, loving God and soul being that emotional nature that with our affections that we love God. Because our affections go out to all kinds of different places. And he says, love God with all your soul, all your affection. Then he says, love God with all your mind, your intellectual nature. In other words, our, our thinking and our thought processes should be done in a way that it loves God. And then he says, with all your strength, which is huge because the strength is with all of our energy or our ability to act. It's not just in our, in, inside of us that we love God, but it is with our behavior and our actions and everything we do, our energy, we love God with all of that as well. 
And so basically what he's saying is that we love God by the continuous growth in our sincerity of affection and our thinking, our thoughts and feelings, that is accompanied with obedience to do all that he has asked. It's not just loving God with our emotions and our minds, our intellect, but it's obeying what he said. It's action as well. You see, loving God without obedience is not a real thing. That's a pretend thing. That's a made-up thing. We don't love God without obeying Him. And, And so Jesus responds to that and says, the greatest command is to love God with everything you are. But then he adds something to it. He he was asked for the greatest command, but he gives two. And he says, and the second is like it. And the reason he does that is because Jesus can't separate loving God from the next thing he says. They are, they're a package deal. (laughs) And, And so Jesus says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he did this, and they can't be separated because, you see, love of others is evidenced, is, is, an, is an evidence or proof of our love of God. If we love God, then we will love others. So you can't really separate loving God and loving others because loving others is the evidence and proof that you do love God. But it's, even a, it's almost a vicious cycle because not only is loving others the proof that you love God. But here's the thing, you can't actually love others the way God calls us to love them unless you first love God. (laughs) So so you can see why Jesus couldn't just pick one or the other. He said, no, no, it's both of these things, love God and love others. And those things are actually working together. You can't love God without loving others, and you can't love others without first loving God because he defines the kind of love we love others with. So, 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 so what does that love look like? It is, we've talked about this before, and in, 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 in 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, we see what, what love is as Jesus calls us to love. It's that intersection of patience, kindness, and truth. Patience, kindness, and truth. And and the thing is, we are kind of bent toward one of those. But you see, it's not love that Jesus defines unless it includes all of those things working together. See, there's those of us in the church who are very much about, we're truth people. And there's other people in the church who are kindness people. And typically, those two people tend to butt heads. I don't think there are patient people. I don't think that's a category that exists. But it's still there. Uh, so, so, so really, genuine love that Jesus talks about loving others with is the love that is defined by patience, kindness, and truth colliding together and living together. Not one is more important than the other. They are all equally viable to define the love that, that, that Jesus calls us to. And here's what's interesting. Jesus says, the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, up to this point, and, and, and we've been talking about this for a long time. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Deny yourself, take up your cross. First will be last, the last will be first. So here Jesus says, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. How does loving myself fit with self-denial? Like that might be an issue. That might be a question. I think the problem with this is that we don't understand 
self-denial. We have, we've created a, a different, I think, a different definition or conception of what self-denial is. I think we, we think of self-denial more of as self-neglect or, or self-abuse or self-hatred. Because self-denial does not mean those things. And Jesus couldn't have meant those things using self-denial because Jesus recognized and taught that we bear the image of God. So why would, why would, why would someone bearing the image of God neglect themselves or hate themselves or abuse themselves? That doesn't make any sense. So Jesus recognizing and, and being, <laughs> being the one who, who placed that within us, self-denial is not a low view of ourselves. Think about that for a second. God doesn't have a low view of ourselves because if he had a low view of ourselves, why would he, he allow Jesus to die for that worthless thing? So there's got to be some value. So, so self-denial is not a low view of self, but it's actually a higher loyalty to the claims and the mission of Jesus and to the gospel. In other words, it's saying when it comes to making decisions in life, I will make decisions that are loyal to Jesus in what he taught and to the gospel, which is the good news for those who do not have Jesus and are going to hell, that I will be loyal for the sake of Jesus and the gospel over what might be my preference or best for me. That's what self-denial is. It's not having a negative view of myself, but it's having a loyalty that is to God rather than to myself. And, and, and so the, the, way, the way we love others, we are willing to leverage anything for their salvation because that's what, that's what it kind of comes down to us. How do I love myself? Well, I made a decision to receive the forgiveness and salvation from Jesus. And on and, 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 and some level, I was willing to give up anything for that. And so what do we do then? How do we love others as ourselves? We give up anything we have to leverage for the salvation of others. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. But it's interesting because we tend to take the approach oftentimes of asking other people to sacrifice so that we feel more comfortable before we really give anything up for their salvation. And that's not actually self-denial, taking up our cross and following Jesus the way Jesus defines following him. So these things, love God and loving others, are the preeminent commands of the Bible. And here's what I want you to do right now. I want everyone to stand up. Everyone stand up. And okay, I, I want to I I make a disclaimer right now. If, there, if you put yourself in danger by doing what I'm about to ask you, don't do it. So if you need to, get your doctor's permission before you do what I'm about to say, okay? So if you feel at all unstable, you, you, you can still be part of this, but I don't want you to hurt yourself. So what I want you to do, I'm going to count to three, and then when I count to three, I want you to, I want you to be on one leg. See why this could be dangerous? I don't, we don't want it. We made it through the first service with no injuries. So I want to make it through this one as well. So when I count three, I want, you to, I want you to go one leg, and I'm going to summarize all of the law and the prophets, the Torah, okay? All right, we're going to do this. All right, so 
Um, is everyone ready? Okay. One, two, three. Love God and love others. We're done. There it is. You can have a seat. Yes. That was the whole first five books of the Bible summarized. And you did it standing on one leg. So good job. It can be done. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so here Jesus answers the question that, that the scribe asks. And the scribe's response is interesting because he responds with not only agreement to what Jesus said, but he actually reinforces it in a, a very interesting way. Before, before I jump back to that, I want, you to, I want you to be reminded of what a scribe was and what they did. A scribe, his whole life revolved around the regulations of the sacrificial system. He was dependent on the complexity and the detail of how to live according to the law and the 613 rules. So if something happens that simplifies the law, he's in trouble because he's out of a job. It'd be like simplifying driving, then no one would work at the DMV. And so the scribe is dependent on the complexity of the sacrificial system. Here, here's, here's what the scribe says to Jesus. He agrees with Jesus, and he says this in verse 33, and to love him, God, with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, what, what did he do there? What did he just say? He said, loving God and loving neighbor is more than the entire sacrificial system. That's called self-denial. The scribe of all people just practiced what Jesus talked about, self-denial. He said, loving God and neighbor is more important than me keeping my job. It's more important than, than me being in a position of power. Loving God and loving others is more important than complexity of the sacrificial system. And if and it, the sacrificial system is worthless and has no point if it isn't for loving God and others. Isn't that incredible that a scribe, one of the people who, who we've seen so far, Jesus' enemies, all of a sudden practices self-denial. And that's where Jesus comes in and says in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of of God. There's that kingdom of God again. But he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which is incredible because Jesus just said that to a scribe. Why? Because the scribe was doing what Jesus called following Jesus. He, he looked at that as self-denial. And, and so really, when Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, it's that this scribe was facing truth honestly and not interested in defending party lines or his personal preference. That's what he was doing. And so he wasn't about defending everything. He said, look, if this all goes away, that's okay because it's about loving God and loving neighbor. That's okay if I lose everything I've built up because it's what's important to God that's significant. And so I think the question for us is, is, is am I, are you like that scribe or are you like the rest of the delegations who are there to adjust what Jesus is saying or to reject what Jesus is saying 
or to make what Jesus is saying more comfortable for you? Or are you and I like this one scribe who actually says, look, if I have to lose everything, that's worth it because loving God and loving others is more important than anything else. In a lot of ways, that scribe lived out in a way that is closer to following Jesus than most people in the church today live out. And, and, and so really, in saying what he said, is this that our gathering is given worth by how we love God and how we love others. Gathering together and singing is rejected by God if we are not living out a self-giving, self-denying love for others. Samuel says that exact same thing to, to Saul when Saul comes and he disobeys God. And then he says to God, well, I, I did this so that I could give you all of these sacrifices and offerings. And Samuel responds by saying, uh, God despises sacrifices if you don't obey. He says, to obey is far better than to sacrifice or worship. And so if we're not obeying what God has called us to do, then we might as well not be coming together and worshiping. And, 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 so, and so Jesus moves on in the next couple verses uh, in, 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 in this question, and he kind of jumps into his own divinity because it, I, love how, I love how this conversation with the scribe ends. It says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Remember that, that those on the offensive, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, they were all asking Jesus, they were the ones who were asking Jesus questions. But now, seeing this exchange, they didn't dare ask any more questions. They were already afraid of what Jesus was doing. Now they're even afraid to ask Jesus questions. And so Jesus starts asking questions. He starts saying things. And so in verse 35, it says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he's still in the court of the Gentiles. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. What Jesus is saying here, among these other things that have been happening in the life and ministry of Jesus, where Peter makes his declaration that you are the, you are the Christ, you're the son of God, claiming him as the Messiah, and Jesus' royal ride into the city of Jerusalem that looked like what the Messiah would have done and being praised and, and honored and worshiped in that moment. The, the question was, there was this debate about the, the greatest king of Israel was King David. And, 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 and the idea is that the Messiah will come through David's line. And so it was the idea that, that is David or, or the Messiah greater? And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110 saying, David says, that the Messiah is his Lord. Just like John the Baptist said that there will be one greater than me, talking about Jesus is greater than him. Jesus is greater than David. And so along with these other things that have been said and mentioned along the line, the Pharisees and the scribes see Jesus quoting the Old Testament here as a claim to divinity and greatness. And without, a, without missing a beat, Jesus moves on. And, and what he does in the next few verses, he gives a, a comparison of what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen, to be following Jesus. And, and so what, what he says is, is he gives an example of the scribes and he gives an example of a widow in verse 38. Here's what Jesus says. He says, and in teaching 
And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes, which I would like to like amend that just to say, beware of the scribes, except that one good one, right? <laughs> so beware of the scribes, except the one good one who, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the market marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so Jesus takes the scribes and this widow, this widow, and he compares and he looks at how they are modeling first, last, last, first that Jesus talks about as a kingdom value. He characterizes the scribes as a group being ostentatious and, and exploitative and hypocritical. Instead of loving God first, they loved power and they loved position and they loved wealth. They set themselves up at first. Think about the way he describes them. He talks about them having the best seats in the synagogue, being in the honored seat at feast, that they, that they abuse widows and they steal their property. That sounds like putting yourself first, right? And Jesus says they'll be last. In fact, they might not even be present. And then Jesus shifts to, to this, and there's actually a change of scene here that you kind of have to be aware of because Jesus has been teaching in the court of the Gentiles. Well, well, he, he actually moved his disciples and they went walking. They walked from the court of the Gentiles into something called the court of the women. And, and that was actually just beyond the court of the Gentiles. Remember, the court of the Gentiles was where Gentiles could come, and that was the closest they could be to the temple proper. But the court of women wasn't just a court for women, but it was a court that, that women were allowed. That was the closest they could be to temple, the temple proper. And, and so there's this court area where men and women were, but there was no Gentiles. It was only Jews, only Israelites could be in the court of women. So Jesus walks his disciples from the court of Gentiles and the court of women. And in the court of women, there were these basically like large, like treasury chests. They, there was this range of 13, they were called trumpet chests because of how they were shaped. And they were designed to receive coins for the temple tax and for free will offerings. And so Jesus goes from the court of the Gentiles, walks with his disciples in the court of women, and stands to the side and watches all these 13 chests. And there are people coming and going into the court of women, giving their offering and their temple tax. And Jesus zeroes in on this one widow who he says, look at what she's doing. And she gives something that's this copper coin that is the least valuable coin in, in, in circulation. It's not worth anything. It's, it's, it's really, it's not worth much, but it was all she had, and she gives that. And, and the other people were there probably giving gold coins and silver coins and things like that. And, and, and some people want to believe and follow through, God. I pray that you would help us to take that deeper step. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be like the scribes 
or the disciples who keep missing the point, but God, we would be like that one scribe or that widow and we would recognize what it is to follow Jesus and that we would be kingdom citizens. We would recognize what we are associated with and we would stop defending and worrying, but we would live boldly. Be willing to lose anything for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.